it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hello, folks. Welcome to Cudlow. I'm Larry Cudlow. Well, Donald Trump branding the border crisis Joe Biden's invasion as the president ignores the migrant crime in the U.S. and instead focuses on climate change. Oh, now we're going to call illegals newcomers. We're going to ask Senator Marsha Blackburn what she thinks about all that. Plus, we got Mike Faulkner and Judy Sheldon on why economic freedom in the U.S. is at a 30-year low. And Congressman Scott Perry on Hunter Biden's admission that the big guy was, in fact, on his business calls. And Katie Pavlich and Charlie Hurd on the Democrats' double freakout. And none other than Alan Dershowitz on Donald Trump's Eighth Amendment rights and other things. But first up, our own Griff Jenkins the Great is down in live from Brownsville, Texas, with more <laughs> on yesterday's border visits. Griff Jenkins the Great. I love that. Hey, good afternoon, Larry. And it was presidential dueling down on the border, separated by 300 miles. But this area, just nine months ago, was the epicenter of the migrant crisis with thousands coming across here to Brownsville. Now it's one of the slowest in the country. Ironically, not because of what the Biden administration did, but because Texas put up that razor wire and obstruction. But over in Eagle Pass, where President Trump was, he, of course, took the microphones, delivered remarks. Here's some of what he said, taking a shot at President Biden. Listen here, Larry. This is a Biden invasion over the past three years. I call him Crooked Joe because he's crooked. He's a terrible president, the worst president our country's ever had, uh, probably the most incompetent president we've ever had. But it's uh, allowing thousands and thousands of people to come in from China, Iran, Yemen, the Congo, Syria, and a lot of other nations, now the United States is being overrun by the Biden migrant crime. Now, when we came down here, Larry, the White House put out a fact sheet about the, quote, impact of the Senate border bill legislation. Among it, they started using that term, newcomer. Here's exactly what they said, quote, the bill also includes $1.4 billion for cities and states who are providing critical services to newcomers and would expedite work permits for people who are in the country and qualify. But I just want to show you video of when I was in Hakumba, California, the thousands of migrants coming across over there. San Diego's a second busiest sector across the entire southwest border, many of them hundreds of Chinese. I gave you that Chinese ID that was discarded on the ground, Larry, last time I was on set with you. And so I didn't really see them as newcomers. They are illegally crossing aliens. That's what the Border Patrol calls them. I just want to show you one last thing, and that is a tweet from Congressman Tony Gonzalez, the Republican congressman represents Eagle Pass area. He wrote about this, quote, I have a 23-year-old daughter, and this is well beyond the politics, and wherever you you live in this country, you don't feel safe. So would you call that illegal alien that killed Lake and Riley a newcomer? I wouldn't. I'd call them a criminal. Finally, Larry, I asked President Biden, I shouted a question. Do you bear any responsibility for Lake and Riley's death as a result of your policies? He ignored me, turned around and walked out of the room. Larry? Yeah, you know, Griff uh, reported Mr. Trump actually called her parents uh, to offer his condolences. 
Biden, of course, ignores the whole situation. And that kind of wraps it up for me. But anyway, Griff Jenkins, you're terrific, as always. Come back to me on set. I want to talk to you on the set. <laughs> all right, folks. Um, my quick thoughts before we bring in Senator Blackburn. With all the hoopla reporting of the presidential visits to the Texas border, I haven't seen any specific references yet to two very important laws passed by Congress and signed by other presidents that will go a long way towards solving Joe Biden's catastrophic open border policy and the roughly 10 million illegals who have entered our country. All right, take a listen. First, something called Section 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which gives the president authority, and I will quote, to suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens, end quote. It's actually similar to President Trump's Title 42, but it's broader than public health emergencies. Now, second point, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996, which added Section 287G, 287G, to the Immigration and Nationality Act. And the gist of this amendment to the Immigration and Nationality Act is that it authorized U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, to delegate to state and local law enforcement officers the authority to perform specified immigration officer functions under the agency's direction and oversight. What's more, 287G gives ICE and local law enforcement partners to identify and remove incarcerated criminal non-citizens to protect the homeland through the arrest and removal of non-citizens who undermine the safety of our nation's communities and the integrity of U.S. immigration laws. Now, I'm going through all this because Joe Biden, and for that matter, any other president, has the legal authority to stop illegal immigrants right at the border and the legal authority to deport illegals who are criminals. They may be in Sanctuary City, but they could still be deported. These bills would override sanctuary cities, and they would open the door to a massive deportation of illegals working with the local police and with ICE. Now, this is essentially what former President Trump wants, and he couldn't be any clearer about it. He wants to go back to building a wall, remain in Mexico, Title 42, and the policy of catch and deport. Mr. Trump wants to mount a national campaign with all the local police authorities and all of law enforcement to deport the criminals. And by the way, Joe Biden's phony border bill not even asks if illegals coming into this country were criminals in their own country. And unfortunately, we're finding out there's plenty of that. Hence, the terrible tragedy of Lake and Riley and many others. Absolute tragedies. Now, in his visit to Brownsville, all Biden could do is attack Republicans and push his spending bill, which would solve nothing regarding illegal immigration. Biden didn't announce any executive actions. And those are actions that are fully legal, as mentioned in the legislative acts that I referenced earlier. Mr. Trump, on the other hand, made it perfectly clear that he would use his congressionally mandated executive power to once again close the border and go after the criminals let loose inside this country.
That is what the 45th president refers to when he talks about illegal migrant crime. And ironically, down there in Eagle Pass, where Mr. Trump visited, Texas Governor Greg Abbott's razor wire fence barricades have been working and slashing the number of illegals coming across. There's a lesson in that. There's a lesson in following the law. Joe Biden's a hopeless open border man. He wants to call them newcomers. What does that tell you? Maybe it tells you everything you need to know. It's been a catastrophic situation for America. And Donald Trump has plenty of legal executive authority to end this mess. I just tried to clarify all that. Those laws are for real. All right. Now, let us bring in uh, the great Tennessee senator, Ms. Marsha Blackburn, to weigh in on this. Senator Blackburn, it's a pleasure, as always, ma'am. As I said, you've got two laws, two specific laws, okay, in the passed by Congresses and signed by presidents to, A, stop the illegals from coming across the border, and, B, to go after illegals inside the country who may be criminals and get rid of them, a deportation program. I don't know why Joe Biden doesn't abide by those laws. I'll let you talk about that because the bill he's proposed doesn't do any such thing. Well, the bill he has proposed is an immigration bill. It's not a border security bill. And what the American people want to see is a border that is secure, like it was under President Donald Trump. And, Larry, you referenced the 287G program. Those programs were very popular with local law enforcement because it gave them the ability mm. to apprehend and hold and then deport individuals who were committing crimes in their communities. And I had a piece of legislation years ago called the CLEAR Act. We didn't get it passed while I was in the House. We have dusted it out, and we're refiling it, and it would require ICE, when they are contacted by local law enforcement, to come and deport those individuals that local law enforcement has apprehended and to reimburse them for the expenses that they have incurred. What is happening with every town being a border town and every state a border state under Joe Biden, you have local law enforcement that is having to deal with drug dealers and cartels and human traffickers, sex traffickers. They're dealing with unprecedented crime and gangs that are spurring this crime. And if Joe Biden wanted to end this today, he could. He could use the same authority that President Donald Trump used when he was president. And I am so looking forward to November when we reelect President Donald Trump and we return to securing our border and supporting our local law enforcement that is ending up on the front line in this immigration debate. Senator, you know, um, talking about 287G, uh, and maybe your CLEAR Act, but let me just focus on 287G. Uh, it looked to me on reading sure. this that that would override sanctuary cities where they will not release any criminals. Is that true? Or do we need additional legislation? We, 287G with its given authority, should override right. the sanctuary city policies. But to be sure that ICE 
comes and receives, they deport these people, like the Venezuelan gang uh, member that killed Lake and Riley. New York City let him go before the detainment order could be issued to mm. ICE. Mm. So then he left the state. That's what these criminal illegal aliens are doing. They carry out a crime and then they look for fresh territory and they go there, thereby People that have never seen gangs are seeing gangs in their communities and neighborhoods, and they are carrying out the carjackings, the smash and grabs, the home burglaries. They are going into communities and trying to recruit young people to be a part of the gang. And people are saying, let's get in behind this and stop this. And local law enforcement is saying, we need additional help in order to be able to get ICE to do their job, deport these people. We don't need to be flying these people coming to the southern border, seeking asylum, to places in the United States. We need to send them back where they came from. But you know, Senator, language is very important. When I read and yes. hear the White House and the president now refer to the illegals as newcomers, okay, when I hear yeah. that... It almost tells me everything I want to know or everything I don't want to know, that he will never be serious about closing the border. His proposed bill would open the border, I don't know, five to 8,000 people a week. I don't know what it's going to like, all these trigger points that nobody understands. Uh, this is an enabling bill to help newcomers. And that is not, I think, what you want. It's not what I want. I don't think it's what the country wants. You're exactly right. And language is important. The actual statutory language for someone that illegally enters the country is illegal alien. Mm. And then it was immigrants, then it was migrants, and now it is newcomers. Mm. Here's what this administration is trying to do. They keep trying to make illegal legal. And they're trying to make illegal immigration Legal. They even came up with an app. If you go use this app, then we're going to let you come on in. And they're granting parole. You know, the killer over in Georgia had been granted parole by DHS. It wasn't even an asylum claim. So language is important. Having a president who will abide by the rule of law is an absolute necessity. And we can pass all sorts of laws. And you know what? Joe Biden is not going to enforce them because an open, reckless border is his border policy. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Senator Marsh Blackburn, we appreciate it very much. Thank you for coming back on. You got it. All right. Take care. All right, folks, coming up here on Cudlow. Why is economic freedom in the United States at a 30-year low? You know, freedom matters to growth and prosperity. So we'll ask Michael Falkender. We will also ask Judy Sheldon. And remember, you can catch Cudlow Monday through Friday, 4 p.m., right here on Fox Biz. And if you can't make it at 4, just text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. And you will never miss a new closed border. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back.
Fox Business reporters are covering the biggest stories. Why did you put your dad on speakerphone with your business partners? Now, the former president's legal team has confirmed he will appeal. With critical Democracy 24 coverage. We've talked to a lot of caucus goers. The line to vote has been out the door. Breaking down business news headlines. The fishermen say that's just a bridge too far. This is the biggest retail tech show. This is outfitted with this remarkable AI software. Fox Business, invested in you. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. All right, here's Bolden. Economic freedom in the U.S. has fallen to the lowest level since 1995. That in the latest index of economic freedom from the Heritage Foundation. This is not good, kids. Not good. Here to tell us why, we have Michael Falkinger, former Assistant Treasury Secretary for Economic Policy, Chief Economist at AFPI, and in the side, he teaches school at the University of Maryland. We also have Judy Shelton, Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute, former Trump economic advisor. Hey, Falkinger, the U.S. has slipped so low, there's like 15 European countries below us. 15. We've been, this is the worst since 1995 when this thing started. Too much spending and taxing and regulating. We're almost as bad as Germany. Wait a second, we are as bad as Germany. What is going on here? Well, you're right, Larry. It's, it's the combination of those three things. When the government comes in and says, that's not your money, we're going to take it from you, that they think they can spend it better than you know how to spend it, and then most importantly is tacking on an extraordinary amount of regulation under the American people that's going to curb their freedom. You know, our friends over at the American Action Forum track the regulations that come out of our government. And just since Joe Biden took office, the first three years of his administration, we have seen their estimates of about $450 billion worth of economic cost from regulation and another 280 million hours spent complying with regulation. That's nine times the amount of economic impact as we saw during the first three years of the Trump administration. And so that's what's really curbing the freedom that we're seeing in that index. Judy Sheldon, we are in this index, 25 out of 176 countries, 25 and falling fast. Okay, and we're not even free free like it's not capitalist anymore. The top rung, Taiwan, Ireland, Switzerland, Singapore, etc. I love Ireland with a 12.5% corporate tax rate. We are sort of hanging on to mostly free, mostly free by our toenails, I think, or our fingernails. So this is nothing to crow about. And all these Europeans are more capitalist than we are. Oh, my goodness. No, this, this is just sad, but it's also a call to arms. Mm. The enemy is socialism. The enemy is statism, collectivism, to quote the new president of Argentina. I'm sure you've been following Javier Millet. And he's saying that these redistributionist policies of big government have just made Argentina, which was once a very rich country, absolutely miserable. Mm. And uh, for me, the villain is all the big spending, the deficit spending. I don't think everyone wants to be chasing government subsidies. A lot of Americans still believe in personal freedom and private enterprise. Mike Falkinger, I hope you listen to what Judy Shelton said. Very important stuff. This is, to use Newt Gingrich's phrase, 
big government socialism. Newt warned about this, I don't know, three years ago in a column on this show and elsewhere. We are practicing big government socialism, which means we are losing our freedoms because, as Judy suggested, all these government programs, they're spending programs, but they have strings attached to them, so they become regulatory programs. And before you know it, the government is running the economy, and that's why we've fallen. I mean, 25 out of 176, that is not good. So, Falkinger, my question is, what are you going to do about it? What we are going to do is we are going to reverse course on all of those things. So as you just said, first and foremost, we have got to deregulate. And, that, and the most important place that we deregulate is in the energy sector. We've got to drill, baby drill, unleash American energy production. And the way that we do that is we take the shackles off of the energy industry through massive amounts of deregulation. The next thing is the other thing you said. We've got to massively cut the amount of government spending. If the government is not directing society's resources and we're instead returning that authority back to the American people and back to private enterprise, we're going to see much more efficient use of resources than when we see government bureaucrats thinking they can do it better for themselves. We, of course, have to extend the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act because that's what has all of the incentives in order to allocate capital in an effective way. And, of course, we need to have sound money, sound financial institutions and reciprocal trade deals where we make sure that the products that we create here in the United States are treated fairly when, our ex when we export them abroad, just as when we purchase products yeah. right. from other countries. No, no, that's and a, so that's the plan that we that, would suggest that a, we would unleash American economic that's a good freedom menu. by doing all that, of those that's things. That's a good menu. Uh, if Trump wins, I think he's going to want to use executive budget empowerment power, which would stop unnecessary and inefficient spending programs. Just take them right out, he would. Judy Sheldon, I only got 30 seconds, but with the Bidens, they're spending like there's no tomorrow. That's inflationary. The Federal Reserve's trying to cut back. They're keeping their interest rates high and their balance sheet relatively low. That's not a good combination, it seems to me. On the one side, it's spending inflation, and the other side, monetary restraint. I've only got about 25, 30 seconds. It can't last forever, can it? It's a terrible combination, and it's one that, that shifts power from the private sector to the government, mm. because government will just keep paying those high interest rates. And then, and then the rest of us are kind of working for the company store, where the interest costs of, of financing the government debt are a burden on everyone. Mm. We just have to change our mindset, mm. and we have to cut the public sector jobs and uh, all of the subsidies. That would be putting us back on the track towards sound finances and sound money. Yeah, well said. You know, it's funny. Sure, the government will pay the high interest rates to borrow, but it's really coming out of the taxpayer's hide. You're exactly right, Judy Sheldon. Fabulous stuff. Michael Falkender, well done. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Now, folks, coming up here, Hunter Biden admits the big guy was on the business calls. But wait a second. He wasn't involved in any finances or any businesses or any influence peddling. Really? Huh? No kidding? We'll have Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry weigh in. Plus, in a moment, the Democrats' double freakout. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's a double freakout. Katie Pavlich and Charlie Hurt. All that and more when Kudlow returns. All right, the Fannie Willis fiasco could be coming to an end. Their final arguments being heard today down there in Hotlanta, Georgia, 
Fox News senior correspondent Steve Harrigan there live with the latest. Lots going on today, Steve. What's cooking? That's right, Larry. It was uninterrupted today. Each side got about 90 minutes to make their case. This has been going on for seven weeks. For seven weeks, it's really the prosecutors who've been on trial, both Fonnie Willis and the prosecutor she hired, Nathan Wade. Defense attorneys tried to make the case today that both of them lied about when their relationship started and that both of them profited from this prosecution. Here's Larry Merchant. The issue is that they began this relationship in 2019. They were dating for two years, and then she awarded him a contract where public money, either from Fulton County or the state of Georgia, ended up in his pockets. That decision alone was improper. But what's even, what's even more improper is that then she, she and he used that money to go on personal vacations and trips. The judge has said even the appearance of a conflict of interest could be enough to remove either Willis, Wade, or both of them. He said he's likely to give his decision sometime in the next two weeks. Larry, back to you. All right. Very good. Thanks, Steve Harrigan. We appreciate it, as always. Now, switching gears just a little bit. Uh, in testimony, dep uh, depositions before Congress, this week, Hunter Biden admitted he put his father on this speakerphone during business meetings but then Hunter said his father wasn't involved. You go figure. I don't know. Joining me now, Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry, who's probably not going to have any of it. I mean, that's kind of interesting, Scott. <laughs> we just happened to have these phone calls, and um, I guess the vice president was on the horn, but he was just there to be there. Maybe he didn't have anything else to do. Uh, he wasn't a good vice president. Ha, ha, ha. Never involved in any of these business dealings. Let's start with that. What do you make of that defense? Well, it's not much of a defense. Actually, I think it's an admission uh, that, the, that the vice president was there. And I suspect if you do cell phone data location for the time of those phone calls, you'll find out that he was right there. And for the, pres for the now president to say he had no dealing, he had no, no knowledge of his son's business dealings, and for his son to say that his father, the president of the United States, had no knowledge of it. None of that adds up. And I would just say that if you can read, you can read 18 USC 201, I believe, which says that taking money as an official act is bribery and is illegal. And even if it's for a third person, so even if, even if Joe Biden didn't get the money, but Hunter did, it's bribery, it's illegal. And he was involved. Scott Perry, you were in the um, deposition hearing. You were there? I stopped over for a little while, yes. So you watched Hunter answer questions? You did. You, th you think he was lying? Directly ask you. I think it's... You look I, at, you know, you look I, at I somebody's it, eyes, you watch their movements, their body language, and so forth. You think he was lying or telling the truth? I, I think it's very difficult to betray your, your parents. Let me just say that. I think it's very difficult to betray your parents and to also... Um, put yourself in legal jeopardy, which might include time in jail. Most people would shy away from that. And I think we're quite honestly, I think that's what we're seeing in the Fonnie Willis case as well. It doesn't seem like the facts bear out the uh, the the transcript, so to speak, or the testimony. But that having been said, we need a little more time to line some facts up with some testimony and get some things corroborated. Remember, Hunter's uh, now, you know, at the tail end of a long list of witnesses. Well, I think um, 
if you have, uh, I see some discussions about an open hearing uh, with Hunter, but but I think that just gives right. him the advantage. He will just spin yarns, tell stories, act out, blah blah blah. I mean, the FBI's taken down this guy Smirnoff, who was supposed to be one of their top informants. They paid him for years. All of a sudden, they think he's right. lying, so they're throwing him in jail. All right, now. I had Jamie Comer, Chairman Comer, on the show uh, earlier this week. And, I, you know, you've got all these, um, you've got checks, you've got uh, tracings of the every Biden family member had a little company, an LLC. I guess my question to you, Scott, is, is this hearing, is this whole impeachment inquiry, is it coming to a dead end? I'm asking this honestly. Uh, or is yeah, sure. there more to do that can be done? Because I don't think you got from Hunter what you wanted to get. I just don't think that panned out. So you've got a lot of checks. You've got a lot of suspicious right. financial activity. So my question to you in the last minute is, what from here? Is this whole inquiry coming to an end? I, I don't think it is coming to an end. And quite honestly, I think the part of the untold story is, is the FBI, the Department of Justice, the IRS's involvement and the fact that they arrested Smirnoff after years of paying him as one of their top witnesses. And the only thing he's charged with is lying on this occasion. He didn't lie on any other occasions, just on this occasion. At the same time, no one ever thought about, apparently, uh, arresting Christopher Steele, who apparently lied to the FBI and was a paid informant. It just is very suspicious to me, Larry. I think that the more we continue to, up, to turn over rocks, the more snakes we're going to find. All right. I hear you. Scott Perry, thank you ever so much. We appreciate it. All right, folks, thank you. let's talk a little politics. Like we never talk politics, but let's talk a little politics. The Democrats have a double freakout coming. We'll describe in just a minute. We are graced with Katie Pavlich, townhall.com and Fox News contributor, right on set with me. And Charlie Hurt, who doesn't like me and is still in Washington. He's the Washington <laughs> Times opinion editor and Fox News contributor, and he's keeping his distance. All right. Uh, both I would of you be there for Katie. If I got to sit next to her. I'm a lot I, of fun. I, I, came, I came from a sick bed just to be on set with Katie. Are you kidding? <laughs> Sacrifice. Anyway, here's the point. That, yeah. uh, our friend Byron York. OK, distinguished comms. He writes a column. The Democrats double freak out. A, a whole series of new polls show Donald Trump is winning every swing state over Mr. Biden in a lot of them by a considerable margin. And then B, and I want A to come first. B, it turns out uh, the Democrats assault the legal warfare, the lawfare is not panning out. Jack Smith cannot get off the ground because the Supreme Court is uh, deciding to look at immunity. They probably won't get done with that until the summer. And I doubt if there's somehow going to be a trial on the eve of the election. If they were, it would be really something. Fannie Willis, uh, it looks to me like disqualification or perjury. But what do I know? I'm just suggesting. And uh, Byron said the Dems are just not happy. All right. First, Katie Pavlich. All the swing states going for Joe, uh, going for Donald Trump. Why is this? Why do you reckon? Well, I think it's the basic concept of is your, better, your life better off now than it was four years ago? Typical, right? But, uh, you know, Joe Biden is in a different position now than he was, obviously, during the last campaign. Donald Trump is out there. Don't underestimate the power of unfinished business when it comes to what he wants to do. And we're seeing something that we really haven't seen before in presidential politics. We have a direct comparison between the guy before, the guy in office now, 
and what people had and what they don't have now as a mm -hmm. result of Joe Biden's policies. And also, Joe Biden ran as a moderate. He has not governed in a moderate way. In places like Michigan, you're seeing this revolt among rank-and-file union workers, for example, who are saying this electric car mandate is mm -hmm. absurd. So you're seeing people pull away in places like Michigan. Um, so it's a rematch for the ages, absolutely. Uh, and Donald Trump is the one who's out there with all the energy when the majority of the country doesn't believe that Joe Biden is even capable yeah. of running for a second term, including yeah. Democrats. Uh, Charlie, um, it's interesting. Paul Krugman, you know Paul Krugman. You probably talk to Paul Krugman all the mm. time to get some economic <laughs> and political advice. Oh, so yes. Krugman of the New York we Times... We out together at the bar. I figured. <laughs> uh, Krugman in the New York Times uh, writes a column called The Mystery of White Rural Rage. Okay? Now, this is wonderful. Um, Michael Goodwin of the New York Post wrote this terrific column. Uh, the mystery of white rural age. Uh, white rural rage is arguably the single greatest threat facing American democracy, according to Krugman. This has a feel to it of Hillary Clinton's deplorables. Uh, Nikki Haley didn't understand stuff like um, the border catastrophe, the lack of law and order, the poor economic performance. As Katie said, you're not better. You're worse off than you were three, four years ago. Um, keeping peace around the world. None of that matters. It's all white rural rage. That's what Krugman said. What do you make of that, Charlie? Well, of course, uh, Paul Krugman is, is a huckster himself, and uh, he doesn't know uh, anything about uh, rural America. Uh, I don't think he would survive very long in rural America if he had to raise his own food or uh, herd cattle or do anything uh, constructive, I think that uh, he, his, he, it would not work out well for him, which is why he works at the New York Times. Um, I, he, you know, he looks around at the wasteland uh, that uh, our political leaders have made of job opportunities in much of rural America. And, he, you know, the only statistic he really looks at with all that is, well, I still have a job. I still work for the New York Times, so I don't really care. That's kind of who the New York Times is. That's who Paul Krugman is. And that's fine. But, you know, the problem here, and, and lucky for him, he's not ever running for office because he also wouldn't get elected dog catcher anywhere, uh, even probably in his neighborhood in New York City. But, uh, you know, I, and I think Katie's exactly right, her analysis of all of this. But the problem is that people like Paul Krugman and Democrats have spent so much time belittling Trump supporters and belittling the people who look to Donald Trump for, for real uh, a real response to things, and they have so vilified these people, and they vilify Donald Trump, and their whole strategy yeah. is to put him in jail, yeah. is to bankrupt his family. And meanwhile, Donald Trump is just focused on the issues. And as Katie says, anybody who looks at where they were four years ago compared to today, based on the issues, based on the things that actually matter to them, yeah. they're much I, worse I mean, off today, and they realize that, I, that Donald Trump has the answers. These yeah. people don't. I mean, they don't. You know, Trump is winning the white working class. Mm -hmm. He's winning the black African-American yeah. working class. He's winning the Hispanic working folks. Yep. He's winning Asian working folks. They don't understand that. But Can Katie, I just say something uh, real quick about rural America? Because I'm from rural America, and I spent a lot of time driving around rural America. They have been attacked for decades. Mm. As Charlie says, their jobs have been shipped overseas. The government spending that their money has made their dollar worthless. Mm -hmm. They've been attacked in terms of their lifestyle. Their food is unaffordable. They have people in Washington, D.C. And, and New York City telling them they have to control how much fuel they use mm -hmm. to making their lifestyle more expensive, what kind of dishwasher they're allowed to have, how much water can come out of their spigot. And then when they dare to push back, 
and vote for someone like Donald Trump. They say that they should be monitored and that there's this threat to democracy through white rage. Uh, you wouldn't be allowed to talk about this, uh, any other group in America, like they talk about white rural America. This is it's the really same deplorable mistake. Last minute, Katie, help me out. The other freak out is Jack Smith and the Democrats' lawfare. The clock is running against them. They will not be able to throw Trump in jail for 750 years. The Supreme Court is going to do a careful review of Trump's immunity pledge or immunity uh, defense. What do you make of that? It's not happening. And, of course, the fiasco in Georgia and the fiasco in New York. This lawfare campaign doesn't seem to be working out on time. Well, the lawfare was banking on the timeline of before the election because they really want to get Donald Trump convicted before then. It's falling apart. The systems that they are trying to use, that they say they depend on, are not working. Yeah. They're not relying on democracy to determine this outcome as they claim they're protecting it. They're trying to use the court system to convict Donald Trump's people vote against him. And it's not really working out in terms of their timeline. Right. I got to jump. Sorry, we're short of time. We're always short of time. But I like the white rural rage. I think this is <laughs> Democrats do not understand why working folks might go for Trump. Katie Pavlich and Charlie Hurt, terrific stuff. Thanks for coming by. Yeah. Next up, folks, coming up is Donald Trump's mega fine in New York, unconstitutional. Speaking of lawfare, we're going to talk about it with the great Alan Dershowitz. Lots more coming on Cudlow. Please stick around. All right, Al Dershowitz writes in the Daily Caller, is Trump's mega fine unconstitutional? He joins us now. We welcome back Mr. Alan Dershowitz, professor emeritus at Harvard Law School and author of Get Trump, The Threat to Civil Liberties, Due Process and Our Constitutional Rule of Law. Professor Dershowitz, as always, sir, it's great to see you. Thank you very much. Does Mr. Trump, in your judgment, have an Eighth Amendment defense uh, for the Supreme Court? Yes. First, I wrote the article with Gatestone. It was just copied uh, by uh, ah. Kohler, but... Stone. I want to give credit. I do think he has a substantial claim. There are cases that say that although the amendment is generally applicable to criminal cases, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, if it's a state-imposed fine intended to deter conduct in the future, it's punishment. And if it's punishment, it can't be excessive in relationship to what is alleged to have happened. And here you have no damage to anybody. Nobody was hurt. No bank was hurt. Nobody complained. Uh, there, there are no plaintiffs here except for the state. And uh, he didn't make profit because had they tried to raise the interest rates, as you know, he would have gone to another bank and gotten the same interest rate, perhaps even a lower interest rate. He was a very good customer. So this is a punishment and way excessive. So I think he has a substantial chance of getting the fine reduced considerably. I mean, one thought I had, uh, my non-lawyer head, but what they've done here, not, you know, prohibiting Trump from running any of the organizations, prohibiting his sons for a few years, I think Trump forever, this, the resorts and hotels and buildings and so forth, they have an international, they have an internet across the U.S. and across the world. They're doing commerce with so many other entities not in New York City. I just wonder if there's a commerce clause or a commerce thought, because you can't relegate their businesses just to New York. They may be chartered in New York, but they're doing business throughout the United States and overseas. Yeah, I think you would be a great lawyer. 
Because you're absolutely right. Uh, let's assume the company was uh, incorporated in Delaware, a tiny little state. And Delaware, so you can't do business anywhere else in the world. That would raise a commerce clause mm-hmm. uh, issue. As Hamilton said when he was the Treasury Secretary and turned us into a major commercial uh, enterprise from an agrarian one, uh, you know, we are one country commercially and economically, and state boundaries don't determine how economics work. It did when we had slavery and when we had the cotton gin and all that, but, you know, we are unit today. You know, we have a state like California, which has a, a gross national product larger than most countries. Mm. And so, yeah, it's a very interesting commerce clause argument that I hadn't thought of. So thank <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Last question. Uh, I enjoy having you on. This is high level stuff. Do you think the Supreme Court will accept a case based on the Eighth Amendment? Have they have they in the past or the recent past? No, not cases like this. They generally stay away from Eighth Amendment cases. But uh, look, taking Trump cases, they took the Colorado case, they've taken the case in the District of Columbia, and this one raises doesn't raise presidential issues, but it raises substantial issues about whether you can circumvent the Eighth Amendment by calling something disgorgement or civil and really using it to impose a fine. If this had been a criminal case, obviously the fine would be excessive. So. Uh, I would hope that the Supreme Court might take the case. All right. Terrific stuff. Professor Alan Dershowitz, thank you, sir. As always, we appreciate your time. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to come back with my last word. My boyfriend, my boyhood friend, Richard Lewis, passed away this past week. We grew up together in Englewood, New Jersey. Richard was a brilliant comic, a brilliant actor, and he was also a wonderful, fabulous human being. And maybe most of From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.